If you've been here the last few weeks, you may, you may begin to feel like the, uh, the folks who got a new pastor in their church and he preached the same sermon every week for about three or four weeks. And uh, they finally said, how come you're doing that? And he said, well, when you understand that part, then we'll go on to the next part. That's not what I'm doing. We are camping sort of in John chapter 19 and John 18 and the events of the crucifixion. It reminds me a little bit of vacation time that we had when our son was in school on the East Coast and we had a chance to go visit him, the, the girls and Sue and I. And on the way, leaving him, going to the airport, we were going to stay overnight and then get the plane first thing in the morning. It was near Washington, D.C. And so... We wanted to see Washington, D.C., and I'd seen it before, a little bit at least, but so we, it was on a Sunday night, and uh, we found a place to park, and we walked, as I recall, several blocks, and we got to the fence of the White House. Of course, it was Sunday night, so we couldn't go in, but we were there at the fence, and we just got up to the fence, and one of our girls, I'm sure it was the one who's not here, (laughs) said... Can we go now? (laughs) For her, it was a been there, done that, bought the t-shirt moment. You know, over. She probably told her friends, I saw Washington, D.C. And that's true (laughs) as far as it went. The crucifixion of Christ bears much study. Because it's full of meaning from so many perspectives. We're going to take one last look at it today from the perspective of fulfilled prophecy. Because Christ not only died for our sin, but he did it according to a pattern that God set in motion hundreds, if not thousands of years before. And he did it according to specific verbal prophecies and according to pictures that were placed in the Old Testament that he fulfilled in a complete way. And so we want to look today at the prophecies of Christ that were uh, prophecies that were fulfilled in the suffering and death of Christ. And then we want to shift our focus toward the end and understand what that ought to mean to us and one way that they can encourage us. The first one that we want to look at comes from John 19. And we're going to read just to begin with verses 16 through 30. John 19, verse 16. Then he, Pilate, delivered him, Christ, to them, to the soldiers, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title, and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. 
Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, or gamble for it, as to whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldier did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We're going to attempt to look at as many of the prophecies as we can, but I will readily confess you may be able to find more if you scour the Old Testament very fully. The first one that we want to look at is this. Jesus suffered willingly. Look at verse 16. Pilate delivered him to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went to the place place called the place of a skull. In the garden... When they came to arrest Jesus, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And what happened? They all fell down. And they got up and he said, "Uh, who are you looking for? (laughs) And they said, "Uh, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) And he said, well, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these go. And he went willingly now i I think it's very clear and we looked at that several weeks ago it's very clear that christ put on that display of power so both the disciples and the soldiers and the chief priests and everyone else will know he did not have to go they did not overpower him but he went willingly and this is the first of many prophecies fulfilled Throughout these events, several times we see Christ going along with the commands of the persecutors. Remember when he was slapped? Obviously he could have spoke the word and struck back with his words and been righteous in doing so. But it was not according to God's plan. And so Christ went willingly. Look at this prophecy from Isaiah 50. I gave, I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then this from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And I'm not much of an animal husbandman, but I know that lambs just go right along. They don't know what's coming. They aren't that smart. Now Jesus obviously knew what was coming. We see that in the garden. But he went willingly. One of the things that we ought to remember when we have this Lord's Supper is Jesus let himself 
be persecuted, let himself be put to death. He let that happen. Second prophecy that we uh, see here is the one, of, uh, one about Jesus being scourged. John 19.1, we didn't read that today, but we read this very short verse. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And we looked last week a little bit at the historical meaning of the word scourging, and it's a terrible, terrible thing in which a, a whip with, with multiple pieces of leather and, and either bone or metal or glass embedded on the end of those things is used to whip a person and they drag it across their back and it would tear open the flesh wherever it was used. And so we read this prophecy, the plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. And then we read from Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. I don't know about you, but when I read that verse right there, and when I think about that in reference to Christ, I think, ooh, wow. The plowers plowed on my back. Prophesied that Christ would be scourged. Third prophecy that we see in the crucifixion is this. He was crucified outside the city. Look at John 7, excuse me, 19, 17. He, bearing his cross, went out. Went out means not just out of the building. He wasn't in a building. He would have been like in a courtyard. It means he went out of the city, out to the place of, of a skull, which is called Golgotha, where they crucified him. There are two places that uh, have been identified as possibilities of the, cru- of the cross of Christ. If you've seen a picture of one... Um, the most common picture of the one that you see is one that is is still an open place today. There is another one, a place where the Catholic Church has built a a built a uh, a church over the spot. But in the time of Christ, both of those places were outside the city walls. Now, there's a significance to that, and the significance is this: in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the, the blood was offered on the altar in the temple, which would have been in the, in the city, but the animal was taken outside the city and burned, the refuse of the animal. And so there's a very real sense in which the sacrifices went on. There was an element of it that went on out there. Listen to this from Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. The element of prophecy here has to do with the reproach of it. You see, the the good part of the animal, the blood, if you will, in terms of a sacrifice, was done inside the city. The, The part that was rejected was taken outside the city. Christ and his sacrifice completely suffered. His, his death was completely outside the city because the people did not respect him in that. And so there is, a, there is an image there from the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the suffering outside the city. The fourth prophecy that we see fulfilled is just the prophecy of crucifixion. Um, in John nineteen sixteen, then Pilate delivered him to be crucified, We read it here sort of as a matter of fact, but you may remember these words from Jesus, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this is, um, this is uh, drawn from Numbers 21. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. The people sinned against God, and so God sent them a judgment. And the judgment was snakes that came and bit them, and they're called fiery serpents. Don't believe on fire. I believe their bite felt like fire. And apparently it was not immediately terminal because they had time to look and live. There's an old hymn, Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's, It's based on this Old Testament scripture and the New Testament fulfillment in Christ. God said, Moses, take a snake, put it on a pole and hold it up. And when people look at it, I will forgive their sin. Now God was putting a picture in place because Christ said <clears throat> Christ knew he was going to be crucified and uh, the crucifixion fulfills that promise not only does the being lifted up on a cross fulfill that but listen to this from Psalm 22 for dogs have surrounded me the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me they pierced my hands and my feet Do you know, you have to scour the Gospels to find the fact that he was nailed to the cross. It's not readily put. It just says he was crucified. Later in John, we're going to read when Thomas came and said, I want to see the print of the nails in his hand. And Jesus said, come here and see them. But at the moment of crucifixion, we're not told he was nailed to the cross. But it's prophesied hundreds of years before by David, the psalmist. Next prophecy that we see here is this. Jesus insulted while he was suffering. Um, Throughout John's account, we see various people insulting Christ and treating him with disdain. But on the cross itself, Matthew records the, really records what went on. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You know one of the things this tells you? They heard what he said. And they remembered what he said. Thank you. (laughs) They heard what he said and they remembered what he said. And they threw it back at him as an insult. You think you're so much something? Just take care of your business now then. (sighs) I imagine that God has perfect self-control. But Jesus Christ, the scripture says, was tempted in all points like as we are. Can you imagine that temptation? That temptation, again, just to speak the word, I'll show you who I am. But he didn't. Because God had other plans. And this insulting is summarized well in Psalm 22. I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, 
and despised by the people. When Jesus was in the garden facing the cross, he knew this was going to happen, and he still went forward. Sixth prophecy that we see is this, Jesus' clothing taken by the soldiers. Look at John 19, 23. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. This was a common practice. Uh, history uh, shows this to us. You know, the spoils of war and all of that. And when it, when it says made four parts, it doesn't mean they cut them in four parts. It means they divided them up. You know, shoes here, belt there, you know, whatever it was, they divided in four parts. But they got down to one called the tunic or the undergarment. Uh, they didn't have uh, clothing like we had, but they had a, a piece underneath and a piece on the outside, let's say. And they got down to that part, and it was special. It was special because it was woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. And so they said, we are not going to cut it up or divide it up. We are going to gamble for it. Your new King James, and your King James says they cast lots. That's very much like throwing dice. And there was some method to the game of, you know, whoever got the high number or that sort of thing. And again, this is prophesied by David in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Written hundreds of years before. And then the seventh prophecy where Jesus was thirsty. Look at John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said... I thirst. Jesus said this on purpose. Jesus knew that this was prophesied, and he went along with it. And, uh, and we have this prophecy in Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd would be a, a piece of a clay pot. Um, if you've ever read anything about archaeology and, and ancient uh, civilizations, they would use clay pots to hold things and and they would get broken as they're buried. And a little piece of clay pot is called a potsherd. And uh, if you know anything about clay, it, it, it'll actually absorb water. And, but he says, my, you know, I feel like a dried up piece of clay. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And then what we read here in John is when he said he was thirsty, verse 29, a vessel full of sour wine... I think we would think of that perhaps as vinegar even, was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and they put it on hyssop and gave it to his mouth. Here in Psalm 69, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And what's interesting here, do you see how they gave him the sour wine? They put it on hyssop, they put the sponge on hyssop and they put it to his mouth. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 12. The original Passover, when the lamb was slain and they were supposed to sprinkle blood on the doorpost of the house, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike it in the lintel and the two doorposts and the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out of the door of the house till morning. Hyssop was used in the original sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice that prefigured the, the final sacrifice of Christ. I don't think any of that's an accident. God has, has left us this map, if you will, showing us how all these things were fulfilled. The eighth prophecy has to do with Jesus' death and that Jesus died voluntarily. Look at John 19.30. 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, some, some of you that may be new to the Bible might look at that and say, well, he just died. That was just his end. That's not the intent of the scripture. And we see that from John 10 right here. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. I would suppose that there could be a sense in which if someone else was responsible for his death, that they would have, at least in their own mind, merit to take standing before God and say, now listen, God, I helped accomplish the death of Christ, therefore I deserve to be in heaven, I deserve this or I deserve that. God said, this is going to be an act completely of me, Yes, you're going to scourge him. Yes, you're going to nail him up. But when the time comes, he is going to lay down his own life. It was a voluntary sacrifice. Listen to Isaiah 53, prophesying this hundreds of years before. Therefore, I will divide. This is God talking. I will give him a portion of, with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He poured out his own soul. And then in death itself, there is a prediction fulfilled. And that is that Jesus' bones would not be broken. This fulfilled both a picture and a specific prophecy in the Old Testament. The picture comes from Exodus 12. In one house, that's the Passover lamb, in one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. When they brought a lamb for the sacrifice, the lamb had to be without blemish. That means, from a human perspective, looking at that lamb, it had to be perfect. The kind of lamb that would win the prize at the 4-H contest. And then after, continuing on, there could still be no broken bones in that lamb. Now, we would look at that and say, what difference does it make? Well, the difference is that God was setting up a picture that would be fulfilled later. We have a specific prophecy given to us in uh, uh, Psalm 22 and Psalm 34. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Boy, I've never had a bone out of joint, much less had all of them out of joint. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. God preserved this. And not only the preservation of the bones and the bones not being broken, but the piercing is also uh, Prophesied, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of the grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. And all this, of course, comes back to John and part of the scripture that we didn't read yet. So let's read it now in John 19.31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that's the day when they were getting ready to eat the Passover feast, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, if you remember from last week, or maybe some of you weren't here, 
crucifixion, the pe- people were hung on the cross or nailed on it. Sometimes they were tied to the cross. Sometimes they were nailed. Jesus was nailed. And the way they actually died was, cru- was suffocation. Because in order to breathe, they had to lift themselves up. But when they lift themselves up, it hurt. And eventually they would not be able to lift themselves up. And so they would hang on the cross for days and days, if allowed to do so. And to speed their death, they would come along with a big hammer and break their legs so they couldn't push up to breathe. Verse 32, one of the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, being a good soldier, wanting to be thorough, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And we'll not take time for the medical analysis, but obviously the fluids in his body were already separating the blood and the water. And when they pierced with the spear, out they came. The piercing was prophesied, as well as the nailing, as well as the crucifying. It was all prophesied. And the last prophecy that we want to look at is this one. Jesus buried in a rich man's tomb. We read here in John, verse 38, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. You understand that they didn't take him across town. There was a place to bury right next to the place of crucifixion. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. A new tomb. One of those sites of the crucifixion of Christ has a garden right next to it. And if you've ever seen a picture of the Holy Land and the the garden... Uh, where the tomb, where we believe the tomb was, it's that picture that, that may come to your mind. It's the only site like that in Israel. And in order to build that tomb, a, a man would pay somebody to chisel out the stone. And they would literally chisel out uh, a place. Uh, we build things like that. Down in the south especially, they build, uh, oh, what's the word for that? Uh, mausoleum? Mausoleum. And they're built out of stone. And the way they would use them is similar to the way they're used in the south. Um, you, you put somebody there, and then when somebody else dies, you open it up and put them there as well. And there's actually a, a process that goes on that, that makes that not a bad thing to do. But this man would have paid money to have this hewn out, and a, and a stone would be put in front of it that could be moved to seal it. It, it was an expensive process. And that's why we read in Matthew... When Joseph had taken the body, this Joseph that we just read about, he wrapped it in a clean cloth and laid it in his new tomb. They weren't just walking along going, hey, there's an empty one. 
They said, hey, I've just gotten my tomb ready. I I don't know if that means Joseph was older. I don't know how far ahead he was preparing. But this was his tomb. And Jesus was laid there. And, And that's why the scripture says, they made his grave or his place of death with the wicked, those two that were crucified by him who were wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so he died with the wicked, but he was buried with the rich. Again, another prophecy from hundreds of years before. Now, what is the significance of this fulfilled prophecy? Well, there are many, of course. uh, And we could start with this. This is the Savior. And, And if you've never considered Christ the Christ of the cross, the Christ of the empty tomb, if you've never considered him as your Savior, you need to. God gave us a a way to see the the veracity of Christ hundreds of years before Christ. And, And you say, well, anybody could have written that down. That's true, but if you'd like to do a little research on that, you you check out the Dead Sea Scrolls, which for sure contain the prophecies from Isaiah and absolutely date that scroll to at least several hundred years before Christ lived. There's no doubt that those things were written well before the time of Christ. And so we have a more sure word, the scripture says. The significance, however, that I'd like to really bring to you today is this too. And the first one is this, God is sovereign. Many of the verses that we read about Christ came from the thoughts of King David. Listen to a couple of them that we didn't read yet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. This is David himself writing down his own devotional time with God. And something was going in his life in which he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? David wasn't thinking about the Messiah. David wasn't thinking about Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David was thinking about his own life. We don't know exactly when David wrote this. We don't know what events were going on in his life. We know from Scripture he had several very low points, some of his own making, some of other people's making. But he was struggling and writing his thoughts down. He cried out in pain to his heavenly shepherd. And in God's sovereign providential guidance of the events of the world, God not only answered his prayer, but set up this prayer to be recorded as a proof of the Christ who would come. How incredibly wise and powerful does God have to be to do that? As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You ever wonder what God's doing in your life? 
You ever struggle a little bit to accept some things? You ever wish things were different? David wished things were different. And God did deliver David. God had a a rich life for David and a rich ministry for David. But along the way, God used some difficulty in David's life for something he could not even imagine. He couldn't even imagine it. That's because God's mind runs on a whole different level than yours and mine. I get a peek into it from reading the scripture, but I can't fully grasp it. God is at work in our todays and in our tomorrows, whether we see it or not. And what we need to do because of that is to rest in Him. Let your conduct be without covetousness, the wanting of stuff or different situations or resolutions. Let your way be without covetousness. Be content with whatever you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know in in the original language that, that he himself is actually two separate words. It's a way to layer it up to give emphasis. We do that too. We, we add words. We could really cut those words out, but we add them to, to really lay on the meaning. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can happen around me if God is my helper? Fulfilled prophecy teaches us that God is sovereign, and it also teaches us this, God is love. God orchestrated all these events around the death of Christ to save you from your sin, to give you forgiveness and to give you a home in heaven. God did that for you. And so the question would be this, if God loves you enough, And if God is powerful enough to set all of that up to save you, doesn't he love you enough to take care of you in the way that you need? Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, or the unbelievers, they're seeking these things. Their life is focused on managing their own existence. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But you, instead of trying to control your existence, you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As you can see, we've had electricians here this week. And they really are very good electricians. <laughs> it's not their fault that light bulb went out, by the way. They, they didn't have anything to do with that except screwing the light bulb in. But uh, And actually, what's going to happen is really exciting. We're going to re- we're going to put new ballast and new tubes in every fluorescent light in the whole building. And you know what it's going to cost us? One big fat goose egg. Not only that, but most of this work is going to be free as well because of the whole project we're doing. And you know what the net effect will be? They are projecting two to $300 a month savings on our electricity bill. 
wow, that's cool. And uh, so the electricians came in, and we've got this wonderful new uh, way to get up into the attic up there. It's a pull-down ladder, you know. And they, so we, we said, well, we want to do this and this and this and this and so on and so on. Okay, okay. So then they, they go up there, and they look it all over, and they come back down. And, and uh, you know, the, 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 the CEO of this project is gone, and the uh, executive officer is gone. So it's down to Don Hubbard and me. Uh, and they came to Don, and Don came to me, and they said, you know, there's some stuff up there that needs to be fixed. And I went up there and looked at it, and I went, oh, yeah, that really needs to be fixed. It's, it looks like an explosion in a spaghetti factory. And they said, if the inspector comes, he is not going to like that. And so Don and I said, hey, thanks for telling us. We'll take care of that. You just put in the lights that we want to put in. Why in the world do we do that when we have professionals who really know what they're doing? And we have a God who is sovereign and a God who loves us. And he orchestrated all of the events of the cross to save us. Why in the world will we not rest in his care and follow his plan wherever he leads us? Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us how great you are through the cross and through all of these events. Help us not to take back our own life and somehow think that we can run it better than you, think that our plans are better than your word, think that somehow your guidance has been a mistake. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rest in you this week. I pray in Christ's name, amen.